made it properly work today, I think, <laughs> having scheduled it. So it was, a, I don't know, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I had scheduled this and I was in my YouTube screen over here and it was like, yeah, going live. And then I was in my OBS over here because I've got like screens and stuff everywhere. And I went start streaming and I was talking, talking to, I was having a great time <laughs> talking to myself because no one could hear it. I think I'm now broadcasting it because it does actually show up and says live, which is good. Levi's there. Ooh, this is going to be a good one. Now, what particularly about the subjects? This I think I can guess. But the subject this week, do you think you're going to be good, Levi? Oh, boy. We'll see. All right, let's, uh, let's start with the easy one, which is sponsor. It's always good to start with sponsor because sponsor is always positive. Sponsor, brand new sponsor, DTAC. Detect, and so this is DTAC, D-E-T-A-C-K. DTAC, detect and prevent weak, leaked, shared passwords with ePass, a patented privacy compliance solution used in 40 countries. Try it for free. So DTAC is a new sponsor. They have their ePass product here, Enterprise Password Analysis, the only solution in the world to provide an insight on enterprise password security. Uh, so as I said, brand new sponsor. Really good to have a brand new sponsor on board. I do like having a little bit of variety. I hope everyone enjoys seeing things from different, uh, different organizations, different parts of the world as well. So massive thanks to ePass. Uh, they, again, do have a product up here to try for free. And as I've said many times before, I love sponsors giving away stuff for free because what have you got to lose? A bit of time. It should be fun. It's not a waste of time if you don't like it. Go and give it a go. could be the most awesome thing you've done for a while. DTAC uh, with ePass. So big thanks to those folks for their sponsorship this week. Few people joining in here. Wayne says hi. Suddenly came on. Good. So long as it suddenly comes on at some point. <laughs> Levi says ubiquity. Yeah, I knew. I do. Oh boy. Oh, I have left lots of time for ubiquity. I'm not going to do that first, <laughs> and I'm not going to do it last. I'm going to do it right in the middle, and then I can figure out how much time we have left. Jen is finally catching one of these live. I usually, listen to your podcast after the fact. Well, this is like that except earlier. <laughs> it's basically the same thing. Let me talk about the less controversial one first. Now, for, for those of you also just tangentially from the other side of the world, which is basically everywhere compared to Australia, it's 8.30. Oh, shit. It's April 1st. 8.30, April Fool's Day, which means I've got to take with a grain of salt everything I'm reading today because some of this stuff seems too crazy to actually be real. But anyway, hmm. April the 1st, Friday morning, 8.30. So this is why I'm drinking coffee, not beer. Let's talk about padlocks. Now, let, let me give you the, the story. So Ari, our 12-year-old son, started high school this year, uh, which is very exciting. So in Australia, the school year starts end of Jan. So he started high school, which he loves, which is, which is great. Now, as he has started high school, he gets more responsibility, accountability, independence, all this sort of thing, which includes having a locker. So for the first time in his life as a student, he has a locker where he'll put his bag and his books and other things as he goes between different classes. And the school said, you will need to get them a lock for the locker. Now, I've not seen the locker in person, but I have had one as a student before. I think we probably all have. I imagine it's like a big metal door with one of those typical weak like locker, what's even the word, latch on it with a hole where you can put a padlock. Now, for those of you listening to this later on, I am holding a three-digit combination lock, 10 characters, 
uh, per wheel. If he was here, I would use this as a math opportunity for him to figure out how many different possible combinations there are and realize that no one is actually going to be able to go through and try a thousand and one sitting whilst they're in front of his locker. We'll get back to the whole sort of threat thing. Anyway, this padlock, you can probably hear it on the microphone. I'm just like jiggling the latch around. It is, uh, let's be kind and just call it a piece of shit, which is what all the kids have. Now, who actually makes this? Master. So Master makes this padlock. It's just the standard thing that the kids tend to have on their lockers. It was probably, I don't know, like 10 bucks at Bunnings or something like that, a hardware store. Three-digit pin. Now, he said to me the other day, he said, um, <laughs> I won't tell you what the pin was he was using or some of the pins he was trying. But he said, kids keep figuring it out. Now, we can all guess what sort of numbers 12-year-old kids who've just started high school are going to be using, so it's probably no wonder that they worked it out. And I said, well, you know, here's, here's something that might be fun. Let's, let's just get a biometric padlock because if you get a biometric padlock, uh, and, and just before I go any further, yes, we know about the lockpicking lawyer. I watch a lot of lockpicking lawyer. He watches a lot of lockpicking lawyer. If you haven't watched lockpicking lawyer before, go to YouTube. Guy's got, oh, I know it's a seven-figure number of followers. He picks up just about any lock you can imagine. Not like the crappy ones, but like decent-looking ones. And like all the video. Oh, my son also is talking to me. <laughs> Thank you, home assistant. Washing machine's done. Picks up basically any decent looking lock and like three minutes later, he's into it. That's why all the videos are like three minutes long. So we're aware of Locking Picking Lawyer. We'll come back to LPL a little bit later on. So anyway, I said, why don't we go and get one of those biometric padlocks? Because if you get a biometric padlock, no one can guess your pin. So we went online and we got one of these OK locks. That's O-K-L-O-K. Now, this was about, I think it was about 50 bucks off eBay. 50 Aussie dollars if you're in America, it's 30-something dollars. If you're anywhere else, work backwards and we'll figure it out. It, uh, it has, as we look physically at the design, it does have a metal casing. It appears to then have a plastic surround near the biometric sensor. And it does have a little USB-C jack in the bottom. Now, Lockpicking Lawyer, who I mentioned before, has done a review on these before, but the OK lock that he was using did have a screw hole on the bottom and did have a removable plastic face, which he damaged as he removed it. And I did actually watch his videos before buying this. So that's sort of the, the basic mechanics of it. Now, if I try and put my finger on here, it's going to flash red, which means it won't work. Thumb won't, yeah. We know how biometric sensors work. When it works correctly, it unlocks. When the battery starts to run down, apparently it will flash. I think it's a combination of green and red, indicating it needs a charge with the USB jack here. If it runs down completely, we've got instructions. I imagine he just has to take along a power pack, remotely power it up, and then uh, then unlock it again. Now, physically, so let's sort of start to the comparison because this is what I think people missed. I tweeted this the other day, and I was like, hey, got my son one of these it raises many questions and i thought i'll just i'll just throw that out there and see what people bite on uh here's the thing this is the way i look at it now i'm no lock picking lawyer no no physical security genius but i do think a lot about how people break into things the discussion we need to have is not how good this is in isolation against a sophisticated actor such as a lockpicking lawyer. The discussion we need to have is how do these two things compare? How do they protect against the threat that 
we have to deal with. What are the mitigating controls? What is the impact if someone circumvents one of these devices? When we just sort of do the obvious stuff, the the little combination lock, and again, if you just listen to this, all the clicking and wiggling around you can hear is the dodgy, dodgy combination lock because it feels so flimsy. Terrible build quality on the combination lock. This one's actually pretty decent. Now, mind you, I've paid five times as much for it as well. So the biometric one is a pretty solid device. It's certainly a much thicker steel as well. So if anyone does have to actually chop through this, it's going to be harder. But let's have a think about who we're actually worried about here. We're worried about other 12-year-olds. Yeah. And maybe 13 and 14. I don't know. Like other kids who can get access to his locker. So this is what we're worried about. Like the other kids that can get access to it. Now, what do other kids do with the combination lock? They keep spinning them and spinning them and spinning them until they can hopefully figure out the combination. That's one possibility. The other possibility is they shoulder surf. So they literally stand behind him as he unlocks this lock and they observe the numbers that appear on the side here through the little windows which indicate which ones you've chosen. So they can do that as well. They're the two most obvious. I'm sure that this would be a very, very simple thing to actually pick as well. But the most likely scenario is someone else is going to come along and undo this lock. How does that change with this? Well, the only way to unlock it, short of any electronic means we'll come back to, uh, is with a finger. So they can come along and keep putting their finger on it. And I did say to him, I said, mate, after you, you put this on your locker, like how many kids came along and tried to unlock it? And he's like, yeah, like everyone. So did it unlock? No. Okay, that's good. The other risk, the shoulder surfing. If someone sees him unlock this, it's the same argument that I've made so many times about when I unlock my iPhone 13 Pro Max. It's a very <laughs> mouthful of phone. But I unlock it with my face. People can observe that, but they can't take a secret which they can then reuse. When you observe someone unlocking a pin-based lock, there is a secret which other people can observe and then immediately reuse at its full capacity. Now, what I mean by that is sometimes people say, well, what if someone gets your fingerprint? I've written a whole bit on biometrics before. It's like, well, you could come along to this glass with my coffee in and possibly try and lift it off, and then you get some gummy bears and a fry pan as the extent of my understanding of how you create a prosthetic. The point is it's a complex process compared to you just enter the number. So the actual threat that he's protecting against is one that this lock does a very, very good job of protecting against. Now, what I'm a little bit more curious about is what happens if the battery does die on this or if it gets bricked somehow, what happens if someone comes along and I don't think this is going to happen with a bunch of like yeah, pre-teenagers, someone comes along like literally zaps it and fries the circuit board. Well, what happens if this one, the old one, the combination lock, what happens if he forgets the pin? I imagine there's a maintenance person somewhere that has some bolt cutters and they come along and they cut it off. And yes, it'll be a bit harder to cut off the biometric one because it's just a higher gauge steel, obviously, but... Someone come along with bolt cutters and chop it off. What happens if someone does get through either of these locks? They get his books, probably a bit less worried about his books. He might have his laptop in there. All the boys need to have a laptop at school. Uh, I'm not being gender biased here. It is a boys' school. They are all boys. <laughs> My daughter's school, it's all girls. That's just the way it works. So uh, someone goes along, gets his laptop, maybe his blazer or his hat. It's just one of those schools. I don't like the blazer and hat. But anyway... They get something that actually has a little bit of value. 
but it's not like getting in through the front door of your house. And I just found the discussions on Twitter really interesting. Where they, I think a lot of it was tongue in cheek, but there were quite a few people who were like, you know, ah, lockpicking lawyer just pulled this apart in no time. They're crap. So, well, <laughs> I'm not worried about the lockpicking lawyer. <laughs> I'm worried about like Jimbo from Class Seven G who comes along and just wants to mess with Ari. That's what I'm worried about. Let's have a look at the comments here. Steve says it's still March in UK. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I guess so. Your last month. Jason's in Toowoomba. I've been to Toowoomba once. It's quite nice, actually. I like driving up the mountain there. Um, Affliction of Armada says, best to make sure it can't be shimmed open by shoving a bit of metal down into the latch. Now, reasonable, reasonable comment. If we have a look at the likelihood of doing that, for those of you that can see this on the video, I think that is, is unlikely, certainly unlikely compared to the other one. And again, that's what we keep coming back to. Like, have we raised the bar overall? So the likelihood of someone being able to use a very blunt, unsophisticated attack on the biometric one is much, much lower than on the physical combination one. Stuart says, kids figure out how to break those easy. Pull down hard on the lock while it's attached and feel for the clicks. Right, which is the combination one, which makes me actually want to do that now. Oh, I just realized I locked it accidentally. Can we try that? What if I pull down hard on it and feel for the clicks? I'm going to need more time. And I do have, like, good lockpicking stuff in the cupboard too. Um, unless unless I can guess what it is. This will be classic if I can guess this. Shit. Good one, Ari. Have I taught you nothing? Anyway. <laughs> Pull down on the lock, he says. What don't I just guess? Someone here, uh, Ele- Elephant Domi... Domi this guy says, uh, do you have a personal dead man switch um, for the for the lock or for my digital life? You're going to need to clarify that one. Levi says, the ones at my school are made out of plastic. I don't know. I didn't know that they existed. Uh, apparently they do. Yeah. Admiral says, can the biometric be locked out after a number of bad attempts if kids are messing with it? Possible DOS risk. Yeah, before I even read your second sentence, I was thinking denial of service risk while in between classes because if someone comes along and they're like, I'm just going to mess with your lock, it's a problem. Now, someone did actually say on Twitter, a number of people, they said, talking about the sort of the DOS thing, they said, what if someone just comes and smears, let's say glue, on the sensor? It wouldn't work anymore. It's like, well, that's true. Also... What happens if someone comes and puts super glue in the wheels of the combination lock? It doesn't work anymore. What happens if someone does the same thing to a padlock with a key and they just put it in the keyhole? So malicious tampering of the lock in order to deny someone the ability to unlock it is a constant risk across all of the different devices we've discussed here. Rodney says one, two, three, four, five. No, it definitely wasn't that because there's only three characters or three digits and they weren't sequential. I'll just say that much. And now everyone can use their imagination to think of popular three-digit numbers that it could be. And I'm not going to tell you if you get it right with respect to Ari. All right. Um, Elephant Domi says, uh, Dead Man Switch for your digital life unrelated to the locks. Uh, yes. So there are, there are multiple ways of doing this. Uh, w- one way of doing this is with one password, the password manager one password, when you sign up for an account, you have a, they call it a recovery sheet. I think was the, the name where it's it's basically you, you sign up, you get what looks like a 
global unique identifier as a secret key. You then also need to have a master password. You should then also enable 2FA. And you can print out that sheet with the key, with the URL used to sign on. And there's a section there where you write in by hand your master password, just so that you're never sort of storing your master password in a system which then prints out the form. Now, you can take that and you can put it in a very safe place. Uh, for argument's sake, a safety deposit box at a bank. Now, if someone can then go and get that, that gets them into your password manager, which is a long way to getting into access to your digital life. There are other digital survivorship models around things like uh, GitHub has got one. Now, what's the name of the one in GitHub? GitHub Digital Survivorship. Uh, I have spoken about this in a previous video, and I did some proper research beforehand, <laughs> where you can sort of define custodians of who will have access to your things after you are gone. Uh, there are other big online services that do this, and I'm just off the top of my head, I can't remember which ones they are, but it requires, it might have even been Facebook, required something to the effect of presenting a death certificate and then waiting for a period of time. And then I would imagine it would also attempt to notify the allegedly deceased individual as well. I think more than anything that the point that's raised here is now is a good time to think about this because when you're not here, it's kind of too late. Uh, I actually also have a digital custodian defined in my will. That is that is someone who knows that they're that person who has the technical capability to take over my things. Uh, and if if I'm dead, then lawyers and things will do their stuff and provide this person with, with uh, appropriate access. I guess they'll give them the one password recovery sheet or something of that effect. Anyway, that, it, it expresses the intent of who you want to uh, put in control of your things. Think about that before you're dead. Tershin Bray says, people keep saying those, what if it's when I pay for stuff, more like my phone, like losing my wallet, won't have the same effect. Uh, not exactly sure what that's about. Might be related to digital survivorship. Uh, Stuart says, Facebook have it. Okay, that might be what I'm thinking of. Uh, if I look for Facebook, digital survivorship. <laughs> I'm just delaying talking about ubiquity. Uh, <laughs> Facebook after death, an evolving policy in a social network. This is not a Facebook resource, but there is a PC. Well, that's from 2014. I'm pretty sure they've done something much newer. Anyway, it would be easier to find. I probably should write something up one day about this because I think it's the sort of thing that like everyone should just go and do now. It's a bit like having a will. Like writing a will isn't fun. Uh, I've had to put a lot of effort into mine in recent years and having to think about what's going to happen and where things are going to go and who you want to do what as well. And not just like the legally binding things, but what is certainly in Australia, at least I forget what they call it, but you can have sort of wishes, those things that you would like to happen after you're dead, but you really have no control over. Hmm. Okay. Let's move on. Rodney says, get on with it. Let's talk about ubiquity and Krebs. Uh here we start. Let's just start. Let's start with the Krebs stories. So if you're watching me, then you inevitably know who Brian Krebs is. Very, very well-renowned InfoSec journo. I would say the most well-renowned InfoSec journo, probably by a pretty significant margin. Uh, and Krebs has done some amazing work over many, many, many years, uh, particularly with uh, online crime gangs, uh, Russian crime gangs, carding forums, dark web markets. Uh, the dude actually speaks Russian as well. I don't know if you know this. Like really, really impressive stuff. Uh, certainly any time I've 
engaged with Brian. He's been just super smart and connected and just really, really knows what he's doing. Now, Ubiquity had a data breach about a year ago. In fact, the story that I've just pulled up from Krebs here, this was the first uh, piece that he wrote on it. It was from March 30. So for some of you, it's still March 30. It's into April, June, and November. No, March. How many days got March? Anyway, very recent, two days ago. So Brian's story here was whistleblower, ubiquity breach, catastrophic. Now, the, the ubiquity breach had already been in the news. It wasn't Krebs who broke the story. And the, the thing that was particularly significant about his story and what I believe is the catalyst for the things we're going to talk about today is that he was contacted by, and even in his own title, well, actually, his own title has got catastrophic in air quotes, but he was contacted by someone who claimed to be a whistleblower. And this person demonstrated sufficient knowledge of the ubiquity network that Brian took him at his word. And he was right. We'll come back to why he was right when we get to Krebs' second story. But it was a very damning headline of ubiquity. Uh, And it was damning based on the feedback that the whistleblower gave Krebs. Now, let's just read the first paragraph here. On Jan 11, so this is Jan 11, 2021, a major vendor of cloud-enabled internet uh, of things, devices such as routers, network video recorders, security cameras, disclosed that a breach involving a third-party cloud provider had exposed customer account credentials. Now, everyone figured out this was ubiquity very quickly. Now, a source who participated in the response to that breach alleges ubiquity massively downplayed a, quote again, catastrophic incident to minimise the hit to its stock price and that the third-party cloud provider claim was a fabrication. Now, this person provided enough information that gave Brian confidence that they were an insider. So Brian ran the story based on the information that he was given. Now, in Brian's piece, he says, the source will call him Adam. Uh, So here's some of the quotes. Now, these are important because these quotes illustrate how bad this person told Brian the incident was. It was catastrophically worse than reported and legal silenced and overruled efforts to decisively protect customers. Now, not only does that sound bad, but it sounds feasible because time and time and time again, we see data breaches where <laughs> I think when I was listening to listening to Risky Business last week, Patrick, Patrick Gray was talking about the Okta incident with Lapsus. And the term he used was something like you could smell the lawyer's Italian shoes in the data breach notification. <laughs> so often lawyers are controlling the narrative in order to minimise damage, particularly for a publicly listed company like Ubiquity. The breach was massive. Customer data was at risk. Access to customers' devices deployed in corporations and homes around the world was at risk. And then this is important too. Ubiquity has not responded to repeated requests for comments. And at the time, even before the Krebs piece, I said in this video, and I think on the Twitters as well, that Ubiquity's communication around this really wasn't good. They were not transparent and expeditious. And it felt it felt like smelly lawyer shoes. <laughs> I'm sorry, Ubiquity, but that's, I'm just going to keep using that term now because I really like it. That's what it felt like. Anyway, so Ubiquity comes out a little bit later on. They come out uh, quite some. So this, let's just get the chronology of this right. So Krebs wrote this on March 30. He's got an update here on March 31, which says in a post to its user forum, Ubiquity said the security expert identified no evidence that customer information was accessed or even targeted. There's also an update just a little bit above that, update December 5, 2021. We're going to talk about that story in just a moment. 
So anyway, it goes on where Adam, as he is called, seriously throws ubiquity under the bus. They were able to get cryptographic secrets for single sign-on cookies and remote access, full source code, control contents, and signing keys exfiltration. So basically, he was making it look like attackers had full control over ubiquity networks running in corporations, and I assume in private homes like this one. And of course, ubiquity had been pushing for online cloud access to things, which some people didn't like because of the risks risks it created. And then this story comes out, and it's like, well, this is exactly the reason why some people were upset about this. And it was just, it was seriously, seriously throwing them under the bus. Uh, A couple more quotes here. Ubiquity had negligent logging, no access logging on databases, so it was unable to prove or disprove what they accessed. But the attacker targeted the credentials to its database and created Linux instances for networking connectivity to said databases, Adam wrote in his letter. Legal overrode the repeated request to force rotation of all customer credentials and to revert any device access permission changes within the relevant period. So, this guy has made it look seriously bad for ubiquity. Now, fast forward to the second Krebs story. We're into December, just gone. December 2, 2021. The headline here, Ubiquity developer charged with extortion causing 2020, air quotes, breach. Uh, let's just cut to the chase here. Ubiquity disclosed a breach of third-party cloud provider exposed account credentials. In March, Ubiquity employee warned that the company drastically understated the scope of the incident. The third-party cloud provider claim was a fabrication. On Wednesday, a former Ubiquity developer was arrested and charged with stealing data and trying to extort his employer while pretending to be a whistleblower. Now, there's a guy called Nicholas Sharp. Not Adam. <laughs> Nicholas Sharp. There are many other stories about the guy out there as well. It was obviously an insider who was in the security team who was part of the incident response, which was an incident that had been initiated by him, and it appears at some point in time he was trying to shake them down for money as well. Now, let's just have a look at this. Uh, Here we go. Here's a ransom. Let's just go straight to the ransom bit. So he's been indicted. According to the indictment on Gen 7, a senior Ubiquiti employee received a ransom email. The message was sent through an IP address associated with the same Surfshark VPN that Nicholas was using. So not great OPSEC, Nicholas. The ransom message warned that internal Ubiquiti data had been stolen, that the information would not be used or published online as long as Ubiquiti agreed to pay 25 Bitcoin. What's a Bitcoin now? 50 grand. So what's that? Well, like one and a quarter million dollars or something? That's a lot. The ransom email also offered to identify a purportedly still unblocked backdoor used by the attacker for the sum of another 25 Bitcoin, or up to 50 Bitcoin. Well, two and a half million bucks. The total amount requested was equivalent to approximately 1.9 million at the time. Ubiquity did not pay the ransom demands. So Krebs wrote that piece up. Uh, he's also referenced here, uh, News of Sharp's arrest was first reported by Bleeping Computer. And again, there's a lot of press out there about this. When this sort of came to light, it did help explain some of Ubiquity's reticence to talk transparently and openly about the incident. Because if there's an insider, and obviously at some point in time they've realised it's, it's an insider. So if there's an insider, there was probably, let's use the legal term about it, you know, like operational security reasons why they didn't want to share any more information at the time. So... After reading this, I had a lot more sympathy for Ubiquity based on the fact they had been targeted by an insider. Now, that then leads to a whole set of other discussions about what level of access should an individual have? What is our sort of, uh, well, sorry, separation of duties 
kind of model within ubiquity. How much should one person be able to do to cause so much drama? Valid discussion. Everyone learns from stuff like this. Octa's learning <laughs> from stuff like this at the moment as well. It helps explain the communication from March. And we sort of got to that. We went, okay, well, that's it, you know. Uh, all the questions and things have well, the big questions and things have been answered now. It certainly wasn't as bad as uh, Nicholas had had represented, but hey, dude was trying to get ransom, right? And obviously, he had used Krebs as a bit of a, a puppet in this in order to give the story more airtime. Now, my reading of it, when I read the Krebs story from December, is he's made it clear that it was an insider, that the insider provided. Krebs with information, he links back to his previous story, that he was trying to ransom the company. It, it just, everything that I read at the time and what I know now after the, the brouhaha that has come, <laughs> it, I, I find it hard to find fault with what Brian's written here. So fast forward now to a few days ago and my Twitter starts to blow up because I'm a well-known Ubiquity proponent and I really like their equipment. This stream right now is coming to you through many, many Ubiquity components. And, and just as a, just to scroll back just a second, uh, I started buying Ubiquity gear, uh, let's say about six years ago, trying to fix dodgy Wi-Fi in my house. And I spent a couple of thousand dollars buying Ubiquity gear. And I was so happy with it all. It was so awesome. I wrote it all up. And since that time, they've sent me a bunch of Ubiquity gear. So not only am I speaking to you through a bunch of Ubiquity gear at the moment, but it's a bunch of free Ubiquity gear that they've sent me. And I've always sort of said, look, they have sent me this. Uh, I like it. Here's what I like about it. Some of the stuff I don't like. Here's what I don't like about it. I'm always very transparent about that. I've written multiple blog posts about installations I've done here in my home and in other people's homes and in businesses and things as well. Uh, I have written courses for them before. They paid me for those courses. That's, that's kind of my job. <laughs> that's, that, that's how I pay for coffee and beer and things like that. So I've got this affinity. So when this thread popped up the other day, people were very vocal. Now, let's talk about the thread. And this is from Corey Quinn. I'll just read Corey's profile. I've, I've, uh, I've had some chats with Corey in the past. Corey, chief cloud economist at Duckbill Group. Uh, he does a lot of cloud stuff. And he he has a solid following. He's got, what, uh, 84,000 followers, call it, at the moment. So a lot of people reading what he says. And what he's done is he's obviously found this, uh, this case that's just been filed by Ubiquity against Krebs. Now... You know what it's like when you get information online and you're trying to separate sort of the fact from the emotion, from the different interpretations. And I still feel there's a bit of this. And I'm just going to be conscious that I think Corey has led with the throw them under the bus argument. And much of what he said here, I totally agree with too. But there are aspects of this as well, which I think are maybe not entirely fair. Right, here's the screen grabs. Complaint and demand for trial by jury. Everything legal just sounds so painful. Ubiquity Inc. Files this defamation action because blogger Brian Krebs falsely accused the company of covering up a cyber attack by intentionally misleading customers about a so-called breach and subsequent blackmail attempts in violation of federal law and SEC regulations. The opposite is true. Ubiquity promptly notified its customers about the attack 
instructed them to take additional security precautions to protect their information. Ubiquity then notified the public in the next filing made with the SEC. But Krebs intentionally disregarded these facts to target Ubiquity and increase ad revenue by driving traffic to his website, www.krebsonsecurity, capital K, capital O, capital S. <laughs> Why the www in the capitals? Anywho, let's pick this apart. So, I, I feel this is a very disingenuous beginning here, not from Corey, but from Ubiquity, because he's, he's taken information provided by an insider that is obviously information that contradicts Ubiquity's position, but Krebs has made it clear. An insider has come forward. This is what they've alleged. This is what they've said. And I find it very, very hard to imagine that when he ends up in a jury, someone is going to say, yes, Krebs deliberately misrepresented information as opposed to Krebs reported information that was provided to him via source that was in a privileged position. And and this, I really think, is the heart of the whole thing. He reported the information that came to him. He was clear about the source. Obviously, he didn't name the person. I don't think he even knew the person. Uh, he just knew it was Adam. He reported information as it was provided to him. It was newsworthy. It was relevant. It certainly seemed credible for all sorts of reasons. One of the things I really dislike about this, and maybe because I, I've, I've had this target at me before as well, is the way that this suit continually refers to Brian's motivation being ad revenue. Increase ad revenue by driving traffic to his website. And you'll see this come up as I go through Corey's thread. So it, it, it feels like a combination of saying Brian got some stuff wrong. Now, Brian knows he got some stuff wrong, and the subsequent story he did made it clear what had actually happened based on the information he then later received. So, you know, we know he's got it wrong. Uh, he's been clear about that. But the assertion that that he deliberately got it wrong for the purpose of driving ad revenue, that's what feels really, really uncomfortable. So a number of times people said, oh, yeah, Troy's only writing about, say, Tesco. <laughs> Go back years and years ago. Tesco security for, for popularity or for clicks or for eyeballs. Now, if I keep scrolling down, because I want to actually see the bits in the legal docos here, number nine here, Krebs's course of conduct makes clear that he was determined to publish stories that adhere to his preconceived narrative that Ubiquity and other companies disregard their company's online security. Krebs intentionally misrepresented the truth because he was financially incentivized to do so. And we come back to this financial incentive again. His entire business model is premised on publishing stories that conform to his narrative. Well, first of all, the entire business model of journalists is to write stories that people read. That's how they get paid and buy coffee and beer. <laughs> We've had this discussion. So I find that that is... It's almost a little bit Chewbacca defense, isn't it? If you don't know what Chewbacca defense is, look it up after this. But it's a little bit sort of intentional misdirection. That was number nine. We'll go on. And I'm just reading the bits that Corey has got in his thread here, keeping in mind that we've just gone from one to nine and we've missed like seven other things in between. Uh, number 22. <laughs> missed another bunch of things. Ubiquity assembled a team to investigate the security issue and discovered a backdoor access point in the system. One of the members of Ubiquity's investigative team was an employee named Nicholas Sharp. Now, Corey's context here says, that's funny, we found a backdoor in our systems. In the filing is in no way the tone that your email struck because what, what he's saying, I skipped over one here, but Ubiquity emailed people later on uh, after the incident was first discovered last year, early last year. 
and they said we are currently not aware of evidence to access any databases or host user data, basically downplaying it, which is what happens in every breach. Like lawyers get involved, they downplay it. And then Corey's point is quite reasonable because he says later on in this this SEC filing is like there was a back door <laughs> that Nick found. So that yes, Nick put it there. Maybe they're going to go in later on and argue that it was only ever ubiquity employees that had access to it, even though it was like one dude maliciously doing so. <sighs> point twenty five. Ubiquity also alerted its investors and the public to the attack on February 5 in an SEC filing. And again, this is sort of where I can see where Ubiquity is coming from here insofar as once they are publicly listed, they have not just a duty of disclosure above and beyond a private company, uh, but also a duty to protect shareholders' interests and pursue things like this What's the right words for this? I sound like a bloody lawyer now. I can see why they are now beginning a lawsuit, even though I think it's completely stupid. Uh, I can see why they're now going down this path because there would be an expectation from shareholders that they take action against this. Let me go on here. Number number 25 here. The 10Q explained that the company had become aware that certain of our... Inf- become aware that certain of our information technology systems... Typo. Hosted by a third-party cloud provider were improperly accessed and certain of our source code. Okay, I understand that. So they were certain that their information technology systems were accessed, had been used to access public information. As a result, it is possible that the source code and other information could be publicly disclosed or made available to our competitors. And without even reading it first, so yeah, of course, Corey's made the observation that... uh, that that is concerning. Uh, now it goes on. I don't want to necessarily go through the entire thing here. Uh, FBI search warrants. Sharp contacted Krebs on, on information and belief. Pitched a false, fantastical story, painting Ubiquity as a villain after victimising the company. Now this is reasonable. Let me read this again because this is actually quite fair. Sometime between the FBI executing its search warrant on March 24 and March 29, 2021. Sharp contacted Krebs and, on information and belief, pitched a false, fantastical story painting Ubiquity as the villain after victimising the company. I don't think anyone's going to disagree with that. Like, that's that's absolutely what happened. And in this case, Ubiquity was very much the victim. Sharp falsely claimed that Ubiquity intentionally downplayed the severity of an external hack, mischaracterised the true nature of an outside attack, and silenced attempts to honestly deal with the problem and protect the information of the company's customers. According to Sharp, Ubiquity took this action to mislead investors and the public and to protect Ubiquity's uh, stock price. And again, like, they got to chuck him so far under the bus and he is going to jail. Like, he, I don't think he's been tried yet, but he will go to jail for, I would imagine, a multiple of years. Uh, th- this is really the villain in the whole thing. Ubiquity's got bad communication and poor forms from Krebs, but, you know, let's not forget whose fault this really was. Um... What else we got in here? Uh, ubiquity while suffering the havoc that Krebs reporting was causing. And see, this is where there's... I can see where they... I don't agree, but I can see where they're coming from because the Krebs story, because it's Krebs, got a huge amount of traction. So when he wrote that they're covering it up and that it's worse than it seems and customer data is at risk and all your networks could be owned, all the rest of it, that would have been really, really bad for Ubiquity. 
In an effort not to compromise confidential nature of the criminal investigation into Sharp, had little choice but to sit and wait until federal authorities moved on Sharp, as Ubiquity's position. Ubiquity brings this litigation because of Krebs' refusal to do the right thing. <laughs> Is that like a legal term? Uh, yes, Your Honour. Uh, the defendant refused to do the right thing. Okay. Refused to do the right thing and retract the March 30 article or the December 2, 2021 update while continuing to malign Ubiquity's reputation, damage its relationships with its stockholders and disrupt its business operations. I don't think, based on everything that I've read, there's anything that needs to be retracted because he made it clear in the first story that this is information provided by an insider, which was correct. He made it clear in the second story that they later learned who the guy was and that he was there trying to shake down ubiquity. It, it feels to me that at the most what Krebs needs to do is clarify the position, but it, it kind of feels clear in the 2nd December post anyway. It just does not read well for ubiquity. Uh, all right, so I got a lot of comments here and... I want to read them, but also want to go on with some other stuff. So I'm just going to look at where I am in this this whole process. Um, let me read the comments, then I'm going to come back to the other points here because I think there's some good sort of counters to this too. Let me see. Uh, Adam's worried about what happens to his home network when he dies. <laughs> um, Lance is late. Try not to be late, Lance. <laughs> Rodney. Collecting bits here. No, maybe could he comments. Uh-huh. Uh, years of failing Wi-Fi. So Tourist here says, after years of failing Wi-Fi solutions have failed one after another, I read your article and never looked back. Uh, a lot of people went and bought Ubiquity stuff because of my articles. I'm conscious of that. What I will say before reading the last couple of comments here is from a product perspective, I'm still very, very happy with the product. And this is what tears at me a little bit, where you see an organization behaving like this, but they make a great product. You see them trying to go to town on someone that I've got a lot of respect for. I think most people here probably do too. But then everyone that I have personally dealt with in Ubiquity has been amazing and fantastic as well. And it, you just... Fucking lawyer Italian shoes. Adam, I have Ubiquity equipment at work. AP Edge Router Pro and Edge Switch. But since moving to my new place a year and a half ago, I'm not sure where I should put my equipment and switch to Ubiquity. Right now my network gear is on the floor in a corner of the living room. Let's just come back to this later on in terms of... What we all should do. There's a Hacker News thread. Now, I can't believe I'm saying this, but the Hacker News thread has actually got some insightful stuff in it. It's got a lot of comments. Now, some of this is a bit negative towards Corey, but let's just read it as it is because I don't think all of it's unfair either. Someone here says, this Twitter thread is pretty bad and the comments here aren't that much better. If I remember correctly, the Ubiquity hack was an insider attack from an employee lying and intentionally breaking things while pushing his lies to the press to hurt his employer. Krebs was wrong and tricked by the employee. I don't know if that justifies this legal action. I'd agree with that. But it's not the normal going after someone who reported a breach. This one is more complicated. Now, that's very fair. This is a very different story to there actually being a legitimate breach. Data's out there, all your PII's spilled all over the internet, and someone say, for example, me, is reporting on it and they come after you. It's, it isn't that. I'm pretty sure Corey is wrong 
on the facts in this case, and so was Brian. I also felt a lot better about Ubiquity once the dust settled and the details about Sharp came out. And I agree with that bit as well, because I felt better knowing that in many ways Ubiquity was the victim as opposed to the villain, and there was someone else shaking them down in a position of privileged access. And again, I think there's still a much, much more important discussion that I'm sure has been had within Ubiquity about separation of duties and how much control and access one individual should have. Uh, now, the person says, I missed the comment thread, which basically says the same thing. I'm going to just link down to that comment. Um, this person says, this seems like a journalistic nightmare. The original article seems perfectly fine, but if Adam, the original informant, and Sharp are the same person, and Sharp is in fact the person who performed the breach, such that this is an inside job instead of an external hack. <sighs> yeah, which is... Then someone says, completely unethical of Krebs not to update his original article and mention this. He got tricked into helping a hacker trying to extort money and owes it to the company to set the record straight. I, I don't know if that's what it boils down to. Are, are we just expecting Brian to like go back to his original article, put another paragraph at the top and say, by the way, this person was an insult? Because in his story, if I go back to it, the original March story, right after the first paragraph, beneath the Ubiquity logo... It says, update December 5, the Justice Department has indicted a former Ubiquity developer for allegedly causing the 2020 breach and trying to extort the company. And, and this, is, this is my issue with claiming that he hasn't retracted it because everything he wrote was, was accurate based on the information he's provided. By the way, we now have more information. Here's a link to it. Here's all that extra information. And this is why I feel uncomfortable about Ubiquity going after him for that. What else here in the Hacker News? Uh... Someone says, yeah, I think the lawsuit is probably bogus, but so is the Twitter logic that people who sue the media are never portrayed in media as good guys. If Krebs was unwittingly used, if Krebs was unwittingly used, the attacker, typo, I think he should update his stories. But that depends on that allegation being true. I don't think that should be worth a lawsuit. I agree with that. But it would reflect badly on him if that's proven true and he doesn't update. So if, if someone in the, co in the comments here has actually done more research on this than me is this what it boils down to is it like brian should add some text to the original story to explain what's already in the second story which is linked to at the start of the original like is am i being too simplistic or is that the problem here any other comments here um adam says dream machine or edge oh, we'll talk about other ubiquity bits later um uh, yes, it, it is a Dream Machine Pro I have, but I'll come back and I'll talk about that if people want to hear more about my Ubiquity build. I'm not sure that's the most appropriate time to talk about it. <sighs> what else is here in the comments? Is there any like really highly uprated stuff that seems good? Krebs certainly did not get the story exactly right, nor did he take responsibility for how wrong he was. Ah, it just still feels awkward, doesn't it? Let me, uh, let me read, I'm going to read you a tweet from Graham Cluley, another very well-known InfoSec journo. And I read this just before I started this video, and I was like, oh, I've got to mention this. So here's Graham's tweet. It's got a lot of likes. Breaking news. Ubiquity sues itself following damage done to its reputation by launching a lawsuit against Brian Krebs. And I think this is actually a good, uh, a good segue into, into the whole Streisand scenario here. Like, this is something that had kind of disappeared. 
uh, okay, maybe not internally within Ubiquity, but no one was really talking about this anymore. Like the December thing came out, everyone went, oh, it was an insider. That sucks. Ubiquity probably could have done a little bit better. Uh, let's move on to like COVID and war in Ukraine and cyber warfare and like all this sort of stuff. And we kind of put that aside. Now suddenly all of this has bubbled back up. And almost without exception, every single tweet I read is now throwing Ubiquity under the bus. Let's do a quick search, just to give you an example. Like, do a search for Ubiquity Krebs on Twitter. What do we got? Uh, some news stories. That's a news stories, news stories, news stories. Me, uh, <laughs> Corey. <laughs> Let's just go to the latest. Just lots of links through to the court documents. Just the headlines don't read well. Ubiquity seeks 425,000 damages against industry blogger Brian Krebs. 425,000 also doesn't actually seem like a lot of money in this case. Now, someone who I won't name, but someone had mentioned earlier when I got up there, like, you know that Ubiquity suing Krebs for 425 million. And I'm like, that's insane. But then what they link to actually, I've actually seen million and thousand represented. Every court document I've seen has represented thousand because it's like 350 for something and then 75 for something else. Um, yeah, most of the discussion here, you know, someone here says, I've been explaining my ubiquity installation, but due to Krebs lawsuit and other reasons, I'm considering selling and replacing. I haven't found a better vendor yet, but welcome to suggestions because this is part of the problem. Ubiquity does such a good job of the product that they create. I know that there are things like Meriquai and other bits and pieces out there as well, but nothing seems to have compared to the product that Ubiquity makes. So now people are in this this situation. How dumb is Ubiquity in suing Krebs? There's sales damage. That's sales damaging levels of stupidity. And I'll tell you what, if it boils down to 425 grand, 425 grand in sales disappears very, very quickly for a multi-billion dollar company. The Fed's charging Krebs' source and story had seemed very sketchy with his sourcing methods basically unethical. Okay, support of uh, Ubiquity. What's worth, uh, in my opinion, is Krebs, after his single source was charged and exposed, sticks to his guns and to this moment hasn't published a retraction. <sighs> mm. Again, like I'm, I'm just, I'm not convinced that I mean, if someone read everything that Brian has written, they would have an accurate picture of what's actually happened. They'd read the first bit, they'd get through the first paragraph and go, oh, there's something actually here, which is an update, which is important. And then that clarifies, it just seems like it's blown out of proportion. It really does. Other comments here. Um, Devin says, it sounds like a lawsuit started by one of the ambulance chaser lawyers. It does feel like that, doesn't it? Hmm. <laughs> Stuart says, did Ubiquity get jealous of the heat Okta were getting? Oh, geez, if we need two weeks of just poor company handling things back to back. All right, so to start rounding out on that Ubiquity stuff, um, I have contacted them. I've contacted my my person there and, and just given them very candid feedback, largely consistent with what I've just said here, which for, for the most part is that Suing a journalist for reporting a story looks bad. Suing Brian Krebs for reporting an infosec story looks really bad. And there are obviously reasons for it. 
And if nothing else, Ubiquity should at least, now there's got so much press, Ubiquity should at least come out and say, this is why we are doing this. Because at the moment, it just looks like they're, they're trying to chuck him under the bus because they're pissed that Nick went to town on them. That's, that's the way it feels. So I think Ubiquity should do a better job of explaining why they're doing this. If there's a good reason that frankly doesn't come across in the lawsuit that they've, that they've issued here, but if there's a good reason, I would like to hear what it is. Because otherwise, people are going to continue to raise these questions around the trustworthiness of the organisation. Uh, you know, I mentioned the, the Streisand thing. Everyone had moved on. We're, we're focusing on the stuff. And now suddenly all these people are going, well, gee, should I be buying ubiquity equipment? Should I be selling it? Should I be moving to something else? For me personally, I'm, I'm honestly just sitting here watching how this unfolds. Um, it, there's like two parallel threads going on in my head. One is just objectively the, the equipment, the product and everything. I, I love it. It's, it's fantastic. I love what they're doing. And the other bit is the way the organisation is handling this. Uh, and I very much not love it. I think they're doing a, a very poor job of it. Now, where does that level out? Uh, I don't know. I just want to see what happens over the coming days and, and how they deal with this. Wouldn't it be nice with the middle ground where maybe Brian just goes, all right, yeah, look, I can... I can s- do you need a paragraph? <laughs> you know, do you need a paragraph of text to say what you're about to read is covered in more detail than the other story? But uh, Adam was really David, and he turned out to be a bit of an asshole. Uh, and you can go and read about. I don't know. Like maybe there's a good way of dealing with that. I like my ubiquity stuff. I want them to make this right so that I can love the organisation as much as I love the equipment. Okay, now let me uh, go through some of these specific questions about equipment here. So someone said Dream Machine or Edge Router. So at present, I have a Dream Machine Pro, so it's a rack-mounted unit. I've also got one of their switches. I think it's one of the 24-port switches. Uh, the, the the Gen 2 ones with the little display on it, you can use your phone with AR from the display. It's got a little, um, uh, little pattern on it, which then allows you to move your phone over the ports, and it overlays with augmented reality which devices are connected to which. It's awesome. Uh, I've posted stuff on Twitter about that before. And then I've got a bunch of classic access points, such as the round dome ones, and a bunch of in-wall units as well. Most of those are uh, sort of pre-Wi-Fi 6 gen. The washing machine just finished. It's my son. I was saying the washing machine just finished. It's so cool. Uh, <laughs> that's Home Assistant. Run through Ubiquity. Other questions on here. So the Shane has got uh, a cloud key Gen 2, two POE switches and security gateway, and they're both fine for uses. I don't really regret choosing them over the UDM Pro. I think they are fine for, for uses. Um, they work well. I've got, In fact, I gave mine away. I gave them to a friend, uh, and they're working very well for her as well, so that's, that's good to know. The Shane says, if I want video stuff, though, I suspect I want to upgrade to UDM with a larger cloud key. So I also have um, the UNVR rack mounted one and again ubiquity sensory stuff i had to go and buy hard disks and cables and things like this but they sent me the ubiquity bits so i have a unvr which runs all of the security cameras around here they've got some g4 pros which are the 4k cameras which are very very cool uh, as well as some of the little dome ones and a bunch of different variety stuff and they just constant record they do uh, recognition of objects people cars things like this they all tie into home assistant via the home assistant integration too so i can use things like the, sec- the security camera as a motion sensor to then via home assistant toggle on lights and things and as i say this i realize how much time and emotional energy I have invested into my Ubiquity network, and the last thing I really want to have to do is change it. 
Uh, Peter says, I have a dream machine in my apartment. Since I don't have room for a rack to use the Pro, the built-in AP is nice as well. Plus, uh, doesn't the HDD and other option stuff you get in the Pro? It doesn't have the HDD. Yeah, so the... Um, the Dream Machine, now I have written a story about that. I put it in my mate Raf's house. Uh, so the Dream Machine, it looks like a little, almost looks like a little R2-D2. Fun fact, on Thingiverse, there is a 3D STL that you can use to print like R2-D2 feet for the Dream Machine. And it's got a little dome top, which is an access point. So it's it's everything bundled into one, which is ironically sort of the thing I was getting away from when I first went to Ubiquity because all the old crappy Netgear stuff I had was everything into one and then i went and got like a cloud key and a security gateway and access points so the dream machine bundles it all back into one but the dream machine pro separates it back out where it's rack mounted doesn't have an access point okay adam's looking for security video stuff too eventually it sounds like udm pro is probably the best bet uh the shane best of luck when i was planning my video stuff i stuck with nest but i'm having a little bit more regret there now I feel like Nest is much more mainstream consumer orientated. As far as I know, tell me if I'm wrong, the Shane, but Nest will uh, will stream everything up into a cloud service and store it there. One of the things I do like about the Ubiquiti setup is that everything is stored locally. Um, it makes it super fast to access locally. Oh, by the way, I got the doorbell too. <laughs> so the doorbell is actually pretty cool because it uh, it pops up in the app. And you can do two-way conversation like you can with Nest, but it also constantly records and it's in a position that's actually really good to have constant recording. So everything stores locally and then you can store as much as you want just based on how big the disks are you want to put in. I've still got a couple of bays uh, open and it runs one of the RAID arrays, RAID 4, something like that. One of the RAID arrays, so I've got disk redundancy as well, which is pretty cool. The Shane says, Unified Protectors come a long way since I was planning, though, to be fair. Adam, is it worth the cloud key versus keeping a system online with the management software on it? My system's on 24-7 anyways. Um, so I think you're saying, should you have the cloud key because how often do you need to actually remotely reconfigure it anyway? If you've got it. Yeah, I, th I think they do have an offering now, which is like a remote cloud key, isn't it? Where you can just have a remote service, which would manage your internal. Mm, I've been on Dream Machines for so long that I've kind of lost track. Rodney, I'm seeing issues with motion detection at night on G3 dome cameras. Other than that, it's awesome gear. Mine seem pretty stable. The one issue I have, I'm going to go to my my dashboard now. The one issue I have is I've got G3 micros. I think that's the right term. Uh, let's just drill down into there, which are the little Wi-Fi only cameras. And their infrared at night always looks hazy. And I've exchanged it with multiple cameras and each one has looked hazy. And I'm not sure why. Everything else just looks like super sharp and amazing. But the dome cameras... No, not the dome cameras, the, the little G4 micros. They have been problematic. Uh, Stuart says, not tempted by the doorbell pro, Troy. Two cameras. I I have requested that before I wrote a very direct letter <laughs> two days ago. I have said, what have they replied? And look, if they have replied, I'm not going to read that out publicly, but um, that would be, be interesting. 
don't think anything yet. I, I actually really like the G4 Pro doorbell idea. Uh, okay. Anyway, <laughs> I'm not going to read that off. I'll read that offline. So, yeah, look, I, I do really like the idea of the G4 Pro. I like the idea not just of uh, having the two cameras, because there's one camera that kind of looks down and there's one camera that looks out, but also it has a fingerprint reader. And the reason I really like that idea is that the door that it's next to at the moment has got uh, a latch on it that needs a key to unlock it, but there's a button on the inside. So obviously the button is closing a circuit somewhere. So I'd really like to be able to, say, enroll all of our fingerprints so that when I come back from a walk, I don't have to take the front door key, which is different, or the front gate key, which is even to the door key, I can just put the thumbprint on there and it would be job done. So again, I really like the products. This is what, it, it would be easy if they made a shit product. It'd be like, ah, screw those guys. But no, they make a really, really nice product. The Shane says, yes, the Nest is cloud-based and can be kind of laggy at times. Rodney, considering one of the new cameras, once I can justify the cost, the, if you want to go really overboard, and somehow we've pivoted from your communication is really shitty to, hey, look at how much cool shit Ubiquity makes. Um, they make it, I'm going to get it the right word here, um, PTZ, was it PZT? One of these cameras, ah, there we go. Ubiquity Unified PTZ camera. Now this in Australia is listed at over $3,000 for a camera, but it's on, uh, it's on a motorized mount as well, so you can point it around and focus it at things which looks super super cool high performance pan tilt zoom camera with 4k 24 frames a second video streaming 22 times optical zoom and adaptive infrared led night vision ah it looks so cool ah please fix your messaging <laughs> uh shane says the next feature i value the most when planning was person detection Protect doesn't have it at the time. It does have it now, but I believe, I'm just going to open up. I actually find the iPhone app for Protect is better than the website. Uh, so the G4 SKU definitely has the person protection. So if I look at, um, let's go here. If I go to my, the G4 Pro, it's on my roof looking down uh, and I scroll back actually I think this might be something that does work a little bit better on the web UI not complete parody here let's go to the dashboard yeah here we go so on my dashboard I can see there's a little little image of the UNVR here with the four drive bays on it and then I've got all of these little detections and there's static photos across the top car 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 person 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 car we're at a place where people walk by a lot and that's, that's really cool. And then I can see each of the cameras I've got listed and then all the detections over the last 24 hours. There were 28 people detected and 201 vehicles detected. And then I can go back and clearly see that. In fact, it didn't detect anything um, after, what, 7 p.m. last night and then before about 5 p.m. this morning. And then at 5-something in the morning, here's me walking to the garage. There's my neighbor driving out. I saw, oh, we're getting way off topic here, but I saw someone on, uh, I think it was on one of the Home Assistant forums talking recently about building number plate recognition into Home Assistant. I think this was what it was, which is kind of cool where it was like, okay, 
we'll get to stalking and privacy in just a second. But it was kind of cool insofar as being able to do OCR on number plates and then be able to have like a paper trail of which number plates came and went when. Imagine if you could do that, you're worried about someone casing the place, like someone driving around. And there's going to be all these people like, ah, yeah, but but privacy. So, well, your mileage may vary depending on where you are in the world. But here, at least, yes, you can have security cameras that record outside the front of your house. Uh, I think that would be at least the geek in me thinks that would be kind of a cool project. So... um, the Shane, going back to the Nest feature, yes, you can definitely do that. Someone else has just walked past my house, and then I can click on that, and then it just drills. In fact, the doorbell does do this as well. Oh, and what's really cool is as the person walks past, there's literally a box that follows them. So it's literally done like person recognition. Now, all of these have microphones in them as well, these cameras. So if ever you need to play it back, that's handy. I have used this in the past where... The kids have been fighting. <laughs> in fact, this was must have been about a year ago, and they're out the back. We live in the water here, so they're in the canal. They're in kayaks, and they come back in, and they're complaining. He did this, she did this, yada, 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 yada. I was like, all right, screw this. Let's go to the footage, and I pulled the footage, and it's like, uh, so you see, Ari, like here's the point where you started to really antagonize your sister, uh, and L, here's the point where you hit him over the head with an oar. <laughs> now, there's no more arguing about who did what. You're both at fault. Don't antagonize. Don't hit over the head with an oar. Very handy for that. Tourist says Ubiquity's Achilles heel is definitely the updates. Many people have lost their jobs, client, because of problematic updates. I so let, let's go through all the problems that I have. I have I have had to rebuild once. I think it was after an update. I think it was a couple of years ago. I have now found the updates much more stable. The main thing that comes to mind in terms of problems these days, and this might happen again now is I'm finding that too frequently I go into the web UI or on the mobile client and I try to drill down on my network and it's got the little access point, the little blue thing going around it to show that something's happening and then it says can't connect. And the only way I can ultimately connect is to go down uh, and actually restart it or, or restart it from the web UI if that's responsive. So I don't know why that's happening. I notice that there's an update pending which I won't take while I'm actually trying to use the connection but that might be something which which helps. And just in case someone is watching this later on and they're trying to say, hey, this is this is how to fix it. What is the version of that update? So I am running on Unify OS version 1.11.4 and the network is running on version 7.0.23 and there's an update to that available. And I am on the official release channel as well. Other comments here. I didn't realize I had a fingerprint scanner. My wallet is crying. See, but this is, to bring it back on topic, this is the painful thing because we're seeing this behavior against Krebs and then we're going, oh, cool, shiny technology. That's hard. Steve, how's your screen doing after it went wonky a few weeks ago? Good change of topic. Uh, I got it replaced. I got the panel replaced. So I'm amazed at how easy this was. So my Samsung widescreen, here's a 27-inch widescreen curved. Uh, there's actually a, a verified authorized Samsung repair shop only about 10 minutes from here. I took it down there. They had it for about a week. They gave it back to me as good as new. So, yeah, thanks for checking, mate. That's, that's all fine. Judith says, my G4 bullets have person and vehicle detection. Works great. Thanks to Home Assistant, I've got it in HomeKit, and it ping, pings up on my TV when it detects motion. Oh, here's the other problem I have. 
and I've fed this to Ubiquity as well. The doorbell app, which actually does seem to have been better in recent recent uh, releases. In fact, not the doorbell app. It uses the same Unified Protect app. But we would have like a delivery person come to the door, ring it, wear out, pops up on your phone, and the two-way comms was just terrible. That does seem to have gotten better with recent updates, though. Um, let's have a look. What else in here? Uh, Shane Lawrence has updated his name. He's not the Shane anymore. Uh, I choose not to hear that the person detection can't afford to replace everything now. Robert says, number plate would be good. Could do something like super cheap auto site where you add the number and state and it will take make and model of the car. Yes, because you could go, in fact, I, I used this just recently. <laughs> there is a feature with our Main Roads and Transport Authority website where you can uh, you can go and search for number plate and we'll come back with the make and the model and the year and I think the registration in, in terms of when the registration ends. Um, a little API into that would be really cool. Okay, so one more thing. An hour and seven into it. This is a long one. Governments and have I been pwned? So good news. We have another government on have I been pwned. It's the Bulgarian government. Bulgaria becomes the 30th government to get a free and open access to domain level searches uh, for API, uh, which is great news. So very, very happy to have those folks on. There's actually a lot of different tech companies that come out of Bulgaria. Now, I don't want to get this wrong. Let me check. Um, Telerik did come from Bulgaria, didn't it? Telerik is Bulgarian. Emissions Connect Bulgarian talent. Yes. So Telerik is Bulgarian. Yes, I got that right. I've used a bunch of Telerik stuff in the past. Uh, and the other one that is Bulgarian, if I look this up. Um, you'd think I'd research this stuff in advance, wouldn't you? Is Alteco, Alteco, which is the company that makes Shelly. So Shelly is the little IoT relays I have... I think I figured out I've got about 60 of them in the house the other day. So they're Bulgarian too. So it's nice to uh, to be able to provide support to a country that is making many good things that I have used uh, over many years now. Okay, so look, folks, that uh, that brings us pretty much to the end of that. I'm, uh, I think I'm going to go and have a chat to my ubiquity friend. <laughs> and we'll see how all of this pans out. Hopefully sanity will prevail. Everyone will get along and make up uh, and we can keep using wonderful products and being nice to journalists. Thanks very much for watching. I will uh, try and keep doing this on a schedule. It does seem to help in terms of the number of people that join in. Uh, and maybe what I'll try and do is just do it a little bit later next week in the day, a little bit later in the day next week. So we, we catch a bit more of the European audience.